welcome to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I am Leah Heigl and I'm here with my co-host Aidan Muir and today we are talking about things as dietitians that we wish more people knew about nutrition. So we have a little bit of a hefty list for you today but we're just going to kind of go through it and talk briefly about the, the few things that we each wish people knew. I'm going to start off with one that we both decided on so <laughs> off air we, we decided we we're going to come up with eight ideas and four of them separately and then like reconvene and th- this one was something we both thought of straight away and it's basically that we wish people had a better understanding of energy balance calories and macros and it seems really simple and honestly very boring but would be an absolute game changer <laughs> like on- honestly 100% because it, it means you you don't get misled as easily or you don't go down um, the wrong kind of path, like spending a lot of effort on things that just don't really matter. And that this is just simple things like being like, if we if we look at it being like calories have a large influence over what we weigh, we are no longer looking and being like, seeing stuff on TikTok like, does lemon water lead to fat loss? Because it's like, how does that influence calories in, calories out in any way? A lot of fad diets would be put out of business if more people knew this. Yeah, 100%. And then just like once again going down like macros and stuff like that um, would have people stop obsessing about little things that don't matter and then prioritizing things that do matter a lot more. And that's coming from a place that's not judgmental. Like that's coming from a place of being like this stuff will just make things easier just for everybody. Totally. Number two is going to be the healthiness of food is context dependent. So this is going to be my quick little rant of people kind of calling foods like either unhealthy or healthy just on their own. Um, I'm of the opinion that there's no good or bad foods. It's all about the context of your diet, whether or something is good nutritionally or not. So if you take, let's say Tim Tams and you were to eat one after dinner every night, but the rest of your diet was predominantly whole foods and pretty high standard, I would say that's still a healthy habit. That's still a healthy diet. That doesn't make that food unhealthy. But it's when you take that packet of Tim Tams and that becomes your dinner. Okay, maybe not the most nutritious dinner in the world. And that's when that food becomes a little less nutritious when you're using it in that way. So just kind of being mindful that food isn't really unhealthy or healthy. It's more of more about the context around it that makes it good for you or not so good for you. Yeah. And for a long time, I've always thought that like context is the hardest part about communicating about nutrition. Yes. Just because I thought it was with nutrition for a lot of people that people just don't see context. They just see black and white. But it's like clearly in other aspects of the world, like people do just like, they are black and white thinkers and People just want like a very clear answer yeah. to things. And I wish I could give people a clear answer sometimes, but some uh, most of the time it's like, well, it's this answer in this context and this answer in that yeah. context. And it's just going to depend on said context. hundred percent. So the next one that I think is an interesting one, but it is that rate of weight loss does not drastically impact likelihood of weight regain to the extent that people think it does. Um, almost everybody intuitively believes that slow and steady dramatically improves the likelihood of maintaining weight loss. And it makes a lot of sense until you question it. One, one question I, I ask a lot of clients that kind of challenges this before I talk about research or anything like that is can you name two people you know of in your life who've lost weight slowly and maintained that weight loss. 
And it's incredibly rare for people to answer yes to yeah. that question. And like, I'm, I'm just talking observationally before like looking at research or anything like that. But I think the reason why people come to this conclusion is that we see people lose weight quickly and regain weight. And therefore it's the assumption that losing weight slower is probably more likely to work. But it's that that we, we've spoken about on this podcast before, but somewhere along the lines of 80 to 95% of people who lose weight regain weight. And it's just like the odds are pretty grim. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, how do we beat those odds and everything like that? And obviously you can make the argument that not many people lose weight slowly and everything like that, or try to go about it, quote unquote, the right way or anything like that. But I just think weight loss is hard to achieve and maintain long-term anyway. Um, and there is some research showing that people who lose a bit more weight over the first six months are more likely to maintain weight loss as well, which kind of challenges that. But I would more so make the argument that it's not so much about the rate of weight loss in particular outside of extremes of very, very slow or very, very quick. Um, it's more about what you do after or what you do as a transition step. That's probably more important, but it's a very nuanced discussion. Yeah, and I think the, the thought behind it, I find, is like kind of sound and people think, well, if you lose it slowly, that's you building like Good those habits. sustainable yeah. habits, which makes a bit of sense for you like, does it actually translate to long-term yeah. weight loss better? And and this is like one of my more unpopular opinions, but because I'm, I'm really big on this concept of like phases and I'm big on this concept of you shouldn't diet forever, obviously, the habits you build while trying to be in a calorie deficit are not the same habits as what you need to maintain that weight loss. Yes. There is a strong overlap. And I think that is important. Like it's good to exercise regularly. It's good to focus on vegetables, have a decent amount of protein, drink plenty of water. Like all of those things, eat plenty of fiber. Like all those things really matter, but like we're also not striving to be in a calorie deficit forever. And the amount of carbs you might be eating or the amount of calories you might be eating or whatever it is, is going to be different when you choose to maintain your body weight at the end of that journey or whatever. And it makes a lot of sense to be focusing more on what do I do when I need to maintain my weight mm -hmm. rather than just the rate of weight loss on the way down. And just quickly to finish up, I feel like the slow and sustainable, like the drawback to slow and quote unquote sustainable is the motivation factor when things yeah. are, when things move really slow. Yeah. Yeah. So just another thing to kind of point yeah, out. Just so many variables. There's so many. Yeah. That, that's why I come back to the <laughs> yeah. whole like observation. Thing. I like, like, I really like that one. <laughs> yeah. It's complex. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the next one is going to be that metabolism isn't static. And I think that the main reason I want people to know about this is just kind of having some understanding of what we've talked about before in terms of metabolic adaptation. So just knowing that your me your metabolic rate is a moving target that changes depending on how many calories you're having or your energy intake. So that metabolic rate is a moving target, which means maintenance calories can be a moving target. So your body's metabolism is going to adapt up to a higher amount of calories that you consume. And then when you consume less, or if you're in a deficit, it's going to adapt down. And I think just having that very basic understanding of metabolism not being this one number all of the time can be really useful when we are talking about dieting and weight loss and all of that. So kind of going... Like back to our first one, I just think that's something that people should know if they're going to enter yeah. enter a diet. It's just a good good thing to have. Yeah, and it's so much about why understanding calories and energy balance is so useful because yeah. I see people write a lot of the time, I've been in a calorie deficit for six months and I haven't lost any weight. Or they'll say that they've gained weight or they've whatever. Yes. And it's like 
the definition of a calorie deficit involves weight loss. By definition, like you can't be in a calorie deficit for a year and not lose weight. What people mean is they've been in a predicted calorie deficit or they've been on a calorie calculator or whatever it is. But that's why knowing that metabolism isn't static and it's a moving target and everything like that and you've got to adjust based on what's actually happening. Yeah, and just because 2,000 calories was a deficit four weeks ago or four months ago doesn't necessarily mean it's a deficit now or like five years later. Yeah, 100%. And like knowing that just eases a lot of confusion as Mm. well. Like it just makes things so much simpler. Like it's one of those things like once you see it, it just like it just clicks and you're like, oh, it makes sense now. Um, Whereas without knowing that, it seems magical and just like confusing. (laughs) 100%, yep. Um, So the next one from me is the difference between 80% effort and 100% effort with nutrition only has a small impact on outcomes and this is one thing once again that i just wish a lot more people would know because it makes life easier to achieve good results because so many people get caught up on striving for 100 percent effort which involves a lot more sacrifice than 80 percent effort and when they don't achieve that level of perfection there's like ask her i'm just gonna yeah. do whatever and then they provide very little effort or whatever um but like the difference between 80% and 100% effort, there, there is an impact on like performance, how you feel, all of those things. But getting to 80% consistently, like I think you should do 80% or 90% very consistently for a very long period of time before you even think about trying for 100%. Because even though it's a small, small benefit, just think about the level of sacrifice in terms of like that would therefore mean like never doing anything off plan ever. Or like it's just so much more difficult and takes away from a massive amount of life without much benefit. Yeah, if you're consistently pretty good, that's so much better than being inconsistently perfect. Something I always liked clients to know. Yeah. And it like this is obviously coming from a place of honesty because it's like it's in my interest for nutrition to be more about perfection and stuff like yeah. that. It's in my interest as a dietitian for it to be more complex and everything like that. But the the trick is how do you get above 80% consistently? Like that's the difficult part of this equation. So the next one is actually kind of related in a way, is that tracking calories is hard. Um, So in my career so far, so working as a dietitian, I've worked with a lot of people who enjoy tracking calories and we do that while working together. I have to say I've met far more people who think they are really good at tracking calories and are actually not very good at all than people that do it really, really well. Tracking calories, like if whether you're using MyFitnessPal or whatever app you're using, it does take a certain amount of fundamental nutrition and food knowledge to do accurately. And it does take a certain amount of time to do. So whether that's like weighing your foods or knowing what uh, like options to choose in MyFitnessPal for different foods and just being pretty accurate is pretty important to like the outcomes you get from tracking calories and I think a lot of people go into it thinking this is the easy option everybody's doing it it must be like super super simple solution Um, and then they get frustrated when things don't work for them or they're just not getting the results they want and I always say like it's so much harder than people think so much more difficult like yeah you can learn how to do it but it is going to take practice and time for you to actually get something out of it like when you first start if you have no nutrition knowledge or very little it's going to be difficult and you're not going to do it well it's a learning curve 
Yeah, I think that once again is the best way to look at it in terms of like I'm yet to see somebody who starts tracking and nails everything 100% to start off with. It's incredibly yeah. rare. I also look at it from from the perspective of I tracked for a decent period of time when I first got into nutrition and I look back and still see that I made plenty of mistakes along yes. the way as well, even though I, I thought I was doing stuff well and everything like that. But it, it's it's important just because like a lot of people come into it with the confidence that they're doing yeah. it perfectly. yeah. And then when weird things happen, as in like they feel like they're very full on a low amount of calories or they, they feel like they're eating way more or less calories than they should be in relation to their needs. Mm. But it's just an accuracy of tracking. And then the, the tracking calories is hard thing also has like a double meaning in a way where it's like it still takes time as well. <laughs> it's still, it's still like a time, takes yeah. part of your day to do. 100%. Yeah. Although it's like I love it in terms of the flexibility. I think it's a great tool. I think a lot of people just get really frustrated with it because, well, you don't know what you don't know. So you yeah. don't know when you're doing things inaccurately. Yeah. And because it's portrayed as the easy way to approach things, you think you're doing it well. Yeah. So definitely not on those people to think that. I think it's an easy assumption yeah. to make. And, and from a positive perspective, everybody who I've had who has tracked, who had not previously tracked, they learn something useful from it as well. Yeah, you can get a lot of good tips and tricks and you just learn a lot about nutrition. Yeah. So the next one I've got is that paying too much attention to headlines of studies reported by the media is silly, (laughs) pretty basic, but it's like um, often they're taken out of context, like they're just looking at the headline or whatever. And I don't know, that's a cliche for people to say, but something that I think is worth thinking about is it's not like conspiracy theory, obviously, but it's like, what what is the goal of um, an article? What is the goal of a headline or whatever? Headlines are written in a way that it's in interest of, the companies for you to click on it. The more clicks they get, the more advertising money they get. That is an incentive in a way that's just like, okay, well, they're only going to post stuff that's interesting for two reasons. One, that kind of incentive that I just talked about. But two, they're only reporting stuff that's newsworthy. And it's like, if an arti- if a research paper came out saying vegetables are good for you, <laughs> does that make the news? Like, of course it doesn't make the news. Like, if a research paper comes out saying vegetables are bad for you, like that would be front page. That news. would be newsworthy. Like, it's it's just a no brainer that it's like, firstly by by reading those studies, like or looking at those headlines or whatever, there's already an inherent bias based on the incentive for what is going to make the news or whatever. It's only going to be there if it's newsworthy or everything like that. Um, and yeah, so like they're only really there if they're interesting, often counter to the rest of the body of evidence or anything like that, or if it's on a new topic and something that has not been studied that much before. So that's why it's interesting. Um, obviously, we take an interest in individual studies, but what we care about far more is the whole body of evidence. That matters way more than an individual study. And the way I would personally think most people should approach this is take note of the headline, think it might be interesting, decide whether it's worth you kind of looking into the topic further. And then if you are interested, look into the topic further (laughs) rather than... Take that as gospel. Yeah, Yeah. pretty much. Yeah, just looking through it with a tiny bit of a sceptical lens, basically. 100%. Um, So the last one for today is a little bit boring, but it might be interesting to some people. And that is reduced gut symptoms. So like IBS symptoms is not always equal to improved gut health. And the only reason I really want people to know this is just because some of the fad diets that claim to be good for gut health. So things like the, I mean, not that the low FODMAP diet is a a fad diet that's 
you know, an evidence-based one yeah. that you would do if you had IBS. But um, the low FODMAP diet can reduce IBS symptoms and it's pretty good at doing it. Um, but overall, following the low FODMAP diet actually reduces the variety of your gut microbiome and overall your gut health is worsened by following a low FODMAP diet for an extended period of time. So already you can kind of see the duality between okay, reduced gut symptoms is occurring, but your gut health is actually getting worse. So it's not always one is equal to the other. Um, an extreme example of this would be like the carnivore diet. Now that's a bit more of a fad diet um, where it kind of takes the extreme example. And in terms of it takes out all of those foods that are common triggers for IBS. So all of those plant foods, all of that fiber that can cause things like gas, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, et cetera, takes all of those out. Um, and a lot of people find that their IBS symptoms are reduced in doing so, but we know having a diet so low in those plant-based foods, again, is not good for your overall gut health. So kind of going back to the reason why I want people to know that is because things are marketed to improve gut health, things like the carnivore diet, diets that reduce the amount of plant foods that you're eating, um, other kind of diets that just reduce other food groups that are usually good for gut health um, and say that, hey, it's good for gut health because it reduces gut symptoms, but it doesn't mean the two are always equal. I know that's kind of complex, but I just think people conflate the two so much yeah. that it can get really confusing to like the average consumer that doesn't really know much about gut health. Um, and it can really seem like those two things are the same. Yeah. And it's just because there's like a bit of overlap, but they're not there's the same. A, there's a bit of overlap. Like you, you can improve your gut health and that might reduce your gut symptoms. Yeah. So sometimes it can go in that direction. It's just sometimes it is also the opposite direction. And I think just being aware that they're not always, whilst there is overlap, they're not always related in the way you think they would be. For sure. So let's wrap up there. So this has been episode 60 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. And as always, if you could please leave a rating or review, if you have not already, we would greatly appreciate that.